Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. However, today we're doing something a little different than uh, a trailer for an urban folk horror movie. Today we're doing an episode of Horror Vanguard. Hello everyone, my name is Ash and I'm joined as always by... Hey everybody, it's John, otherwise known as the Liquid Guy. Excellent, excellent. That was that was the quickest introduction we've ever had. And we have a guest today. Today we are joined by Jay from Library Punk. How's it going, Jay? Oh, hello. It's going quite well, thank you. Uh, once again, the, the, the rituals have been complete. We have summoned someone into the HV crypt, bound them with esoteric charms and incantations, uh, and now it's time for all of our guests' least favorite part of the show, which is where we ask ask our guests to introduce themselves to the HV uh, audience, um, talk a little bit about your work, where people can find you, and how people can support what you do. Cool. So, um, as y'all said, I am one of the co-hosts of Library Punk, um, which y'all were were on for a great Nick Cage uh, movie episode. Yeah, um, we 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 came on we came on to talk about Nick Cage and completing the systems of German idealism <laughs> <laughs> and, and Goethe. Um, and uh, what we are is we are a um, a leftist library worker podcast. So we do episodes on like. Uh, information services for uh, people in prison or we just did an episode about um, like radical digital humanities and political economy uh, last night and I assume it'll be out by the time this comes up because Justin like edits them and like an ADHD like fever dream uh, we did an episode with someone from the leather archives and museum um, so if you're interested in anything related with libraries and, and leftism, uh, highly check it out. You know, I highly recommend it. Um, I, I think it's quite a good podcast, a bit biased. Um, I am a, a librarian at a university, um, which is why I'm on a library <laughs> podcast. Um, I don't have any scholarship coming out right now, um, but you can find me on Twitter at underscore wild at heart but it's spelled like oscar wild um and then i have a digital scholarship project i've been working on right now um, it's my digital garden and that's at wild at heart but with hyphens between it dot garden um and library punk we don't do a patreon or anything we all just do it in our free time including the the editing um so what we do is we like to pay the discourse tax <laughs> at library punk where if you participate in any discourse um you have to donate to mutual aid somehow um and so i donated ten dollars to um a kellogg strike fund um and so i would encourage people to um, either donate to that or a mutual aid fund of your choice and match me if you can or go above whatever you want to do hell yes and we will have links to that strike fund in the show notes we'll post them on twitter we'll post them in the discord on the patreon everywhere that's good and if you want to invite Jay on your podcast, all you need is a human bone flute and a bridge. It's it's really that easy. That's how y'all got me on. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot wait to talk about instruments made from human bones later. That's going to be the best part of the episode. Oh, yeah, that's another reason I'm on. I forgot to... I guess we'll get to that later. <laughs> we, we will... Uh, so, this, yeah, this is an audio medium, but we will paint a, a word picture for, for our audience in just a bit. 
but before that, I think it is. Um, I think it's uh, really important that today's film. Today's film is super interesting, but it's very sadly underseen for reasons that we will we'll get into as the show unfolds. So, um, you know, sometimes Ash likes to have a little bit of fun with the pricey, maybe get a little bit dramatic. Uh, but I think today it's going to have to be just a very kind of straightforward uh you know recap kind of thing for people who have not seen it ash which is probably going to be quite a lot of the people listening um the empty man what's it about uh, so so i did make a huge mistake today and instead of writing a praise for the empty man i just i just grabbed the taglines for bagul uh and then uh the bye bye man and all of those other movies so that's that's my fault the phrase nature abhors a vacuum echoes in the background of our cultural dialogue like the tolling of a distant bell. Our society sees absence as something desiring to be filled. Each empty field is just another Walmart waiting to be born. <laughs> Things that are unused and unprofitable must continue to be eternally extracted. The moral worth of a thing is defined solely by its ability to contribute, to give, to become. Emptiness, solitude, depression are blasted heaths that must be plowed under so that an eight-lane highway and suburban sprawl can infest the soul with the same rapidity of cancerous usefulness with which they cut through the land. We are filling up our silence with wounds. All the while, the phrase, nature abhors a vacuum, echoes in the background of our cultural dialogue like the tolling of a distant bell. Loss is the most undesirable form of emptiness from the perspective of a society that can't stop moving. Time and stillness are the two things required to overcome loss. When something dear is ripped from the core of our being, the process of restoring and rehabilitating that internal landscape is a patient one. However, unending development requires eternal motion. Exhausted, stripped, and broken, we are driven forward by the plow of production for profit. We have no time to rest, to sit with the emptiness within, no time to explore the caverns of the self. We only hear a faint ringing in the darkness. The phrase nature abhors a vacuum echoes in the background of our cultural dialogue like the tolling of a distant bell. Join us as we discuss David Pryor's The Empty Man. Ooh, spooky. Love it. Always a pleasure to hear them. See, see how I thematically used repetition in a movie that thematically uses repetition? Wow. Wow. <laughs> he's, 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 he's so deep. He's so deep, everybody. Wow. Steven Root's uh, going to come and like, take that and do a, a little speech in front of people with it. <laughs> Disney, Disney is going to steal that and rewrite that for the trailer of The Empty Man 2. But before before we get to the Empty Man two, we have to go to the formalism, formalism zone. zone and talk about some Davids. How do we feel about David Pryor and David Fincher? John, was that you about to talk? <laughs> David David Fincher and David Pryor are both very good, in my opinion. Um, this is uh, Pryor's directorial debut. Um, has been mostly a producer, I think, has done some editing work and has done a kind of, has done, it, it seems like has done basically everything else that you have as a job when you're making a movie. Um, Fincher, of course, director of, of 
a whole host of incredibly well-known films, but probably most well-known for a particular kind of style. And I think these two Davids have a lot in common, stylistically, right? Which would make sense um, because David Pryor worked with David Fincher. Um, that really good Fight Club DVD release, David Pryor is the one who did all of the like behind-the-scenes bonus features. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was making all of those for David Fincher while David Fincher would be making his movies. And there are some very kind of like Fincher-esque ca- uh, camera movements in this film, I think. Because the thing, I think Fincher does all the time, and it's in this all the all the way through as well, is have uh, cameras on the kind of edge of things. So there is a sort of like paranoia and voyeurism induced in the uh, audience. You know, you become a spectator. You're never, a, you're always kind of like urging the camera in to try and really find out what's going, uh, what's going on, and that's especially important. In a film such as this, where where sound design is so key to the whole kind of crux of the horror they're trying to construct, right? Oh, for sure. I, I'm I'm glad you brought up the sound design. I think it's also important to note that most of the, from what I can tell, it's using anamorphic lenses throughout. So, like, if you pay attention to it, you'll see like around the edges of the shots will be kind of distorted and and blurry, but you don't really notice it unless you're looking for it. And I think Kubrick would do this uh, a lot. Um, And it, again, it sort of helps to create that sense of unease when you're watching. Ash, what do you think? Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of appropriately enough. There's a lot of emptiness to this film. And there's, there are so many moments in this movie where, your eyes really want to start exploring the the kind of the void beyond the characters, right? So the camera will be focused on on a character, but they'll spend like maybe 40 straight seconds just sitting doing nothing. And so your eyes start to wander and the backgrounds are full of so much like rich detail. Like there's so much, you're absolutely right, on the edge of the frame. This movie is, I really love the cinematography because it's, so committed to the themes of the plot and the script it winds up being like weirdly fantastic like i weirdly loved the cinematography in this it's it's gorgeous um Mm -hmm. yeah i i could not get enough of the cinematography um for this film and i had a train of thought and then it went away so i'm gonna pause while i think about it (laughs) well well uh jay maybe you can talk a little bit about why why nobody saw this film? Oh, yes. Um, so one of the things about this film is even though it was released uh, last year and had a theatrical release in the middle of a, a pandemic, which is one reason why nobody saw it, but another is that it was actually principal photography happened in, I believe, 2017, because this was the final film that 20th Century Fox put out before it was bought by Disney. Um, that's why it still has like the original 20th Century Fox logo on it um, instead of whatever it's called now. And because that merger was starting to happen, because this they gave David Pryor just all the money. They, they were like, yeah, mm-hmm. we know you do good work. Here's money to do your, your weird Empty Man movie. Um, and so it's this you know passion project that's got so much talent in it. And then this merger was happening. And so it gets kind of lost in this like 
20th Century Fox taking a huge risk and a huge bet on this to Disney being like, eh, I, I don't know about your weird Derrida cult movie. Um, and so it kind of just got like unceremoniously dumped in in theaters like two years after it was supposed to be released. Um, the trailer literally didn't get released until a week before the movie. Um, so yeah, it just got no, no press, no marketing, nobody saw it. And the critics who did at the time just trashed it. Um, and yeah, so that's beyond it just being released during a pandemic. It just had a a post-production hell that it was going through. Uh, and uh, you, you brought up something that we, we kind of have to talk about here. Um, and I will confess that I didn't I didn't watch the trailer before I watched the movie. <laughs> but let's let's talk about the trailer, Ash, because I know you have some feelings about the trailer. <laughs> yeah, so I really hate trailers for horror movies that try to be anything more than your like bog standard uh bye-bye man, bagooly kind of Annabelle creation type movie. Like if your movie is there is a spoopy ghost monster who is chasing a bunch of wayward teens, you're going to cut a great trailer for that. All Halloween movies have great trailers. But then like if your movie is like even in the slightest bit transgressive of the accepted boundaries of genre within horror, your trailer is going to tank your film. Like I think a lot about Guillermo del Toro's uh, *Crimson Peak*, yes, a movie that a movie mm-hmm. that like, you know, tra- trailer houses had no idea what to do with that because it's a it's a gothic horror movie, but it's also a gothic romance, and there's no conventional marketing language for that, right? And the same thing happens here um, with *The Empty Man*, because this is this is a movie that's like this this is almost like spooky Fight Club in in a way like it's it's a horror movie it's a, it's an urban legend folkloric kind of film but it is it is very concerned with these philosophical meditations and the horror is really just like it's like a background to that it's like a subtext and the trailer the trailer just makes this another like a, a bunch of kids uh go go to the the evil death bridge that's in town and uh, Bobby, the creepy kid from school, told them that if you whistle the wrong way, you piss off a ghost and the ghost kills you. So, of course, they all whistle and piss off a ghost. And like that, the trailer is just like, you know, like I, I watched the trailer before I watched the movie and my reaction was like, oh, OK, we're going to do one of these like standard, completely uneventful, like urban legendy horror movies. Sure. Um, but then I watched this movie and like m- just mind blowing, completely different. Yeah, like, I kind of want to tell people out there who haven't seen it to stop listening right here and go watch it without learning anything else about it, Um, because it (laughs) makes for an experience. I hadn't heard of this film. I hadn't seen the trailer. Nothing. And my boyfriend was like, I have to show you this movie. You're going to love it. Do not look up a single thing about it. (laughs) And he was right. It was a roller coaster ride the whole time. I I kept, like, every, every maybe, like... 15 or 20 minutes i I just kept having to ask myself like wait what (laughs) and that's like three different movies yeah there's there's so much in this movie that just feels like sudden and weird and grafted and like i i love the experience it's not like this isn't like a conventionally good movie i I wouldn't say but it is like 100 worth the the mayhem it will induce upon you 
yeah, it's very effective. Uh, I'll say that. Like, there is mm-hmm. a lot of talent and competence that went into it. And yet it's still kind of a mess, but it, because of the themes of it, it kind of works. <laughs> yes, it, it, it's, it, it, it's quite something. And I, and I think, I think you're completely right. If you haven't seen it and from this opening, what, 10 minutes you think you might be interested in watching the movie, pause, pause right here, go watch the movie. We will be here when you come back and you can thank us afterwards. Um, but Ash, I, I wanted to ask you about something. Do you want to talk about Supernatural very quickly? So one of the weird things about The Empty Man is that it, this this movie, it's trying to do this kind of like, this meditative contradiction is what this film is. Because part of this movie is heavy and deep and very actively wanting to wade some complicated religious and uh, theoretical grounds. And the other half of this movie is what if Dean Winchester was in his late forties and, and he, he had been in retirement from severe trauma and now he has to, he has to go defeat, you know, a Bagul one last time. And like, I don't know if this is like a Kafka and his precursors thing that the cultural impact of Supernatural is so weighted that everything post Supernatural feels like it's in discourse to it. But there's so much of this that wound up feeling like an episode of Supernatural. The way it's, this is, this movie's actually, it's like a procedural investigation. And like it, it fits the flows and beats of a supernatural episode like so well. This is this is the season cliffhanger of a supernatural series. Yeah, like it's I've only seen the first four seasons of Supernatural. And one of the things that I liked about the show was that like the first season is basically just the X-Files, but brothers instead of Mm -hmm. Mulder and Scully. Like there's literally the same episodes, Um, but then it starts kind of clumsily, but interestingly bringing in um, these like religious concepts and questions of morality and ethics. And it's clumsy about it and doesn't always do it right, but it's interesting to have that in conversation with like monster of the week episodes (laughs) yeah 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 this definitely it has that monster of the week episode vibe and like a lot of this it felt really televisual in a weird way like the way that action happens on screen and kind of what's going on there's like this this televisual pacing to it all and I, i also found that to be really refreshing this didn't quite feel like a movie but in a very good way yeah, I think if you thought about it as a kind of traditional movie, uh, and this is something critics said, that its pacing is very odd. Um, and its pacing is actually quite sluggish in places. Um, but if you think about it, you know, I was like, if this was a limited series on one of the many streaming platforms which are available, like people, <laughs> people would love this. You know, if it was instead like, a three or four or even five part miniseries like people would go absolutely wild for this yeah and it's like because it's even conveniently got the like day one day two day Mm. three like dividers in it yeah absolutely absolutely but instead it was instead it was 
um as you pointed out jay it was kind of critically uh panned um and i i guess i guess the thing that i'm i i i was hoping we could kind of talk about is like since it was since it had its release there have been lots of like outlets and lots of reviewers lots of critics going this is going to be the next great cult classic horror movie um and so i wanted to know what you both think like what what makes what makes a movie a kind of cult classic that's a a good question i've actually been thinking about that in in general a lot lately because i follow the like cult films little like topic on twitter and all that shows me is things from taxi driver and the godfather yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah that sounds about right and i'm like cult movies i'm right like a cult movie is not just like i feel like cult movie now has almost taken on this like thing of like it's not a blockbuster and so it's a cult film and and it's sort of ignoring this tradition of like transgressive cinema or b movies and like midnight movies like the rocky horror picture show is my all-time favorite film i have a tattoo of it and like that's a cult film Mm -hmm. um or at least started that way i would argue it's like getting a little too mainstream now to hold on to that um but like begotten i would say might be a cult film like there's a niche for it um so i don't necessarily know it's kind of like that one like definition of of pornography where it's like i i can't i know it when i see it um so yeah i don't know what what y'all think about something being a cult film i don't know i think it might be too soon for this like it feels like cult film has become like a marketing term for it and not in the spirit of what a cult film is yes absolutely i think the status of cult cinema is like all taxonomies inherently contested right you know like we're never going to be able to agree what counts as cult but i think there's a few like there's a few flags that always pop up when a movie becomes cult and i think rocky horror picture show is the defining example of the cult movie, right? It's it's arguably the most successful cult film, right? They they play, I mean, back when TV was a thing that existed, they would just play Rocky Horror Picture Show on TV around Halloween, right? So, so I mean, like, for decades now, it's been transgressing the what actually counts as cult line. Um, but I think, like, so you, you get this movie that, is mixed critical success like all like all cult movies wind up being amazingly commercially or critically successful but amongst their like weird cult (laughs) amongst the people amongst the fandom if you will and i think like another another key thing for a lot of cult cinema is it winds up uh somehow breaking away from like what the movie inherently sets out to be. Um, the Room is a great example of that, right? The, right. the Room starts off as like an attempt to make a serious melodrama, but now it's like a midnight movie, so bad it's good kind of thing. And the Rocky Horror Picture Show is now, it's it's like a bit of participatory theater. You know, it's it's not really a movie. It's kind of the background scoring for participatory theater. And so, like, that's it's broken away from itself. I don't know if that's ever going to happen to The Empty Man. 
like I, I don't know if we're ever going to have like uh, come see the midnight showing of the empty man and, and dress in your empty man costume and we'll do some like I don't know zazen halfway through the screening or something like I'm not sure there's a way to like graft those those pieces together well if I can if I can be if I can kind of be a bit cynical about it I think uh this kind of diag this retroactive diagnosis of what the film is mm. is um it's a way of kind of like excusing the critical panning the film got when it came out because uh it, like like jay said there's there's just too much competence in this film yeah. for people to go oh well it's just bad uh it, so because it, it's incredibly well directed the cinematography is great um i might have a few quibbles with the script but generally think it's super solid um but the thing is it's also too weird and too uh interested in honestly some pretty complicated ideas um to be easily taxonomized categorized into correct you know genre position and then marketed accordingly so really this kind of like retroactive oh in in five years it'll be a cult classic is yeah is mainstream film critics going, oh, wait, <laughs> maybe we should have given this film a little bit more of our time and attention. Absolutely. You're never going to like, to put this in the same plane as like, another, another like one of those flags for cult classic movies is, is they're either like wildly incompetent a la Troll 2 or they're wildly camp a la Rocky Horror Picture Show. And this, this movie is neither of those things. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> no. This movie takes itself, for the most part, very seriously, except then James Badgedale is allowed to, like, quip, like, three times. Yeah. And even even that, I, I think that that is, like, I think that that winds up being, like, incredibly clever. Like, I think I think the uh, the, the sombre quips, like, there's a couple times where he's just like, oh, what, what, is, what is his, like, amazing one-liner that he has? Uh, like oh, when, oh yeah no yeah <laughs> yeah where it does the thing where you think it's gonna do the the standard filmic rhythm of they do this three times because that's kind of a rhythm people expect and so you'll see sometimes like when people want to subvert that they'll do something four times like in the um battle of the bastards game of thrones episode where mm-hmm. the kid gets got um and in this one they just like do it twice so instead of him like testing it again he's like yeah no and then just starts running away yeah and i think that 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 fits in too because i mean spoiler alert we find out towards the end of the film that he's he's not a, a real flesh and blood person he's a tulpa right so he was he was programmed with these kind of like canned responses he is essentially a movie character within a real world so of course he only has a few stock phrases and so, like, the fact that he's kind of, like, repetitious, it, it, winds up, it winds up working so well that we have a generic action hero as our lead in a movie about a man who was created from, like, three newspaper snippets. Yeah, absolutely. And this uh, kind of further reinforces some of the crit- critiques of the film based on the acting performances, where they go, oh, well, our lead character isn't very interesting. It's like, did you watch the film to the end? <laughs> right? Did you see the fucking movie? Of course he's not interesting. He's a fucking, like, thought ghost wizard thing. Yeah, like, I, I was um, 
to prepare for this, I, I tried to find like anything I could about people talking about this. Um, and so I listened to a few podcast episodes and people were talking about how James Badgedale and really a, a few people in this movie, they're actors where they are not leading men, right? They, but when they show up in something, you're like, oh, it's that guy. Um, like the guy who plays Paul was in The Void. Uh, mm-hmm. which is an incredible movie. I love that film. Oh, so good. Yeah. The like young Neil Cassidy kid that's young Ned Stark <laughs> from from Game of Thrones. Um I, I forget what all James Badgedale has has been in, but he's got that quality of like when he shows up, you're like, Oh yeah, he's good. Why isn't he in more things? And then you kind of forget about him until the next time you see him in something. Like everyone in this movie is that way. And not to rank pop culture tulpas here, but I do think that Lombrosa is a better tulpa than the My Little Pony tulpas. <laughs> yeah, that were I'm like so glad you brought that up. <laughs> I also thought I, I was watching this, and so the the I don't speak Spanish, so I'm, I'm imagining Spanish speakers knew this as well. Um, but the first time it reveals his name, where his last name is La Sombra, so I'm a nerd who did mm-hmm. like Vampire the Masquerade LARP in college. And one of the types of vampires you can be is a La Sombra, and they control shadows because that's what La Sombra, like tentacle shadows, because that's what La Sombra means in Spanish. Yep. Ooh. Yeah, and I was like, yeah. I, I, I heard his last name and I was like, okay, come on now. It's a bit on the nose, but I was wondering like how many other like LARP nerds were like, hey, wait a minute. And I, I think, I think this kind of all speaks to like. One of like one of our our uh, bones that we love to pick on this show is kind of the state of contemporary film criticism, and and that that commentary that oh this will be a cult classic one day two point four out of five stars, like what what is what is the meaning of any of the words you just said? Did you grapple with the text in the slightest? Are are you conversing with what this movie is attempting to doing? Did you even just Google the, the protagonist's last fucking name? You know, like you could have had an interesting conversation about people willing My Little Pony cartoon characters into flesh and blood existence on 4chan. Uh, But instead, you just kind of said like, oh, maybe one day this will be neat. Bye. Rage, table flip. And also, like, I feel like there's been a few horror things. And in fact, an episode of Supernatural um, that involve the concept of tulpas and, and thought forms. Um, yes. Like, I, I think it's that one great episode of Supernatural where it's, like, all the kids thinking of something and, like, all the symbols are Blue Oyster Cult album symbols or something. Yep. <laughs> and that's how uh, Dean recognizes it. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, like, uh, it's that's a horror trope that has been used before, and I thought it was really clever how they did it. In, in this way but people don't even engage with the use of tulpas as a you know horrifying monster thing in other horror mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely um one other one other formalism thing that i loved about this movie was the score yes like <laughs> none of the none of the visuals of this film were like affective for me at all because the all, all the visuals for this movie like if you've seen if, if you know what a bagul is, like, this movie is not going to creep you out. But the score, I was like, oh, my God, this hits way too good. And then I looked up who did the score, and, of course, it's Lustmord. So, like, uh, dark, unsettling ambience the whole way through. And it includes, my favorite aspect about the score is that it includes um, that sort of low monk chant drone 
mm-hmm. throughout, not just in the part where we're in Bhutan. Because I was paying a lot of it, attention to that because I love the sound design of this movie so oh, goddamn much. Yeah. It's so great. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that like sort of lone monk chant is sort of underscoring that like ambient drone the whole time. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. The, the 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 score and sound design in this are just just pitch perfect, uh, and the way that it chooses to emphasize certain sounds uh, in the mix at certain key moments really does make everything just kind of hit so much harder than it would do if it had a kind of very kind of um, normative, very sort of flat sound arrangement. Um, you know, like footsteps and footsteps in snow in the opening sequence in Bhutan is just has ne- they've never sounded more kind of like viscerally horrifying. I think my favorite moment of sound design is when he um, is actually during the scene where all the teens are on the bridge. And then putting that mm-hmm. in conversation when he finds them all hanging under the bridge, because when they all blow, they do the urban legend, bye bye man thing, they hear this rattling and it kind of sounds like chains or something. And you realize when he finds them hanging under the bridge that that rattle they were hearing was the sound of their own bodies, that their yep. feet banging against the, the pipes just because they were swaying in the wind. So it's like this weird time thing, but it's like using that sound and then when he finds them, it's like there's all this ambient, and then all of a sudden all the crickets cut out. Ooh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's because it's a sound so you good. don't even notice until it's gone. So uh, we've been we've been talking about uh, we we keep mentioning uh, a little a little place on Earth known as Bhutan, and I think I think that this provides us with an excellent window to move on uh, to to summon our own tulpa, the Discourse Man. So I know, I know, Jay. You had a lot you wanted to say about uh, Buddhist philosophy and and topics related uh, therein. So uh, take it away. Yeah, I'll try to to condense this as much as possible and not go off too much. Um, but the reason I like this movie so much and it affected me a lot, and um, I, I think probably one of the reasons y'all brought me on is that um, I'm actually um, a practicing like. Uh, Vajrayana Buddhist. So Vajrayana Buddhism is what a lot of the people call Tibetan uh, Buddhism, but it is not limited to uh, Tibet or that region. Um, and I actually took a Buddhist philosophy course in in college. Um, and one of the things about Buddhism is it is like you hear people all the time say it's not a religion, it's a philosophy. I would disagree with that. Um, but uh, a lot of the practice involves study and working through this philosophy and logic. And this movie, like, I don't know if it's doing it on purpose or not, um, because it is explicitly referencing Derrida in points, but a lot of what Derrida talks about is very similar to a lot of Buddhist thought. Um, So in in the notes, I sort of laid out a few... um, sort of like basic relevant concepts from both Buddhist philosophy and also tantric or esoteric Buddhism, which goes more into maybe the religious practice element, um, but is still rooted in the philosophy. But they explicitly kind of reference these things in the film. And I I imagine a lot of people won't know what it is. I haven't seen a single Mm -hmm. critic bring it up. I haven't seen, like, I haven't heard people on podcasts talking about it. I can't find anybody else (laughs) mentioning this (laughs) stuff. Yet the movie spends its first 20 minutes in Bhutan. 
so um, for those of you who aren't familiar with Buddhism, and I'm not going to go into like what is Buddhism and all that, but one of the mm-hmm. core, um, not beliefs, but sort of frameworks of Buddhist philosophy is the concept of emptiness. <laughs> so immediately <laughs> the title is in conversation um, with this with this concept of, of emptiness. And a lot of people will mistake this for nihilism, but it is not that. Um, so one of the things about emptiness is it's this sort of kind of almost like a ship of Theseus thing where it's like, okay, how deep down do you have to go into something to get to like where you can point and be like, that's the essence of this thing. So like, where is the self, right? Is there a part in your brain where you can be like, aha, that's it. Uh, And it's sort of through Buddhist logic and philosophy, you know, the deeper you dig into something and pull it apart and you realize it's just all of these things that are brought together. Um, But when you take it all apart, there's nothing there. Um, Everything is more of an interpretation or a amalgam of things, but then they are sort of, uh, the, the Buddhist sort of language for it is empty of intrinsic existence. Um, and so it's kind of uh, similar to the concept of uh, difference, where uh, everything is sort of based on what it's not, but it's always like constantly deferring meaning. Um, and so it's at its essence, it's sort of, it's, it's empty <laughs> is <laughs> it's kind of one of those things where it's like you, you either kind of get it or or you don't when you're you're learning it um but it can really make your your head hurt <laughs> um and i don't know who put the the note in the in the notes about um her, uh, hermeneutics um but uh if you want to go into that in relevance to this concept really quick that would be fun to maybe put it in more theory terms <laughs> Yeah, to, to put this kind of slightly more theoretically, then um, everything is reading. Uh, and everything is a kind of uh, simultaneous reading and writing. Um, so there is not there is not a kind of like uh, a, a, a static nature to existence, right? There, there is this uh, existence is defined by its negativity as with language and thus uh, we know what a word is because we understand all of the things that it is not. Exactly. And one of the sort of classic examples of describing infinite uh, emptiness and sort of the nature of reality in a, a Buddhist sense that they actually kind of talk reference in this film indirectly um, is the, the, I, the sort of image of a magician um, who creates like a shadow animal. I think in the Dharma, it is an elephant. Um, but it's like so convincing that people can't tell the difference between this illusion of an animal and the actual animal itself. And so it's like, well, then what's the difference between those two things? Which one is more real? Does that difference even matter? And then sort of applying that to all reality and like what's the difference between a dream and reality there isn't one right um it's the sort of we interpret everything um 
and so everything is subject to uh, interpretation. Um, we ascribe meaning onto to things, but there's nothing sort of inherent or essential that makes them that way. And maybe you can talk a little bit about how you see all of this fitting into the film itself. Right. Um, so beyond just like the the title. <laughs> um, <laughs> so and they, they explicitly reference the term tulpa in the film. Like we sort of learn like at the end that James Badgedale's character um, is a tulpa or a sort of like thought form like these people thought about him hard enough that they created a a flesh creature through through thought um he's a thought made flesh over time but the concept of tulpas actually comes from buddhism um the way that we tend to use them in the west is um kind of divorced from that um but the Buddhist concept is basically it is the um, physical manifestation or emanation of the Buddha or um, a Bodhisattva or something um, where there's like this sort of like ground of being, this Buddha nature, this essence, and then the tulpa, the nirmanakaya, um, what it's called, is sort of that but physically manifested. Um, and so like the Dalai Lama is actually a tulpa, <laughs> if you believe in this, um, it's very fun. He, uh, the, the reason that the Dalai Lama is someone that is a rebirth of something and not just like you, you vote on him or something is that he is the Buddha, um, Chenrezig or Avalokiteshvara. Um, he is a physical emanation of this sort of specific metaphysical ground of being potential thing it gets kind of like um trinity father son holy ghost about mm-hmm. it like what is the difference between these things and is one emanation of the other and it's best not to think about it too much um but one of the reasons why i found the use of tulpas in this film so interesting is because they don't just talk about it as like oh this is someone thought about this hard enough that they made it into existence is that they explicitly talk about it as like not just a thought form manifestation, but in order to house a specific being or concept from another plane. (laughs) So he's not just an empty man. He's not just a tulpa. He is the tulpa of this specific spooky bye-bye man guy, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so it felt different to me than the way tulpas are used in in other media that I've seen. And are there are, are there other aspects of kind of um, Buddhist philosophy and practice that you spotted in this? You what you think are important? Oh yeah, so I was like screaming during the whole time they're in Bhutan uh, at the beginning um, because it it's not just that they're in this you know buddhist cultural setting but the camera will linger on things or specifically use um aspects and not just in an offhand way um and so one of the first things that they show is they walk past um a prayer wheel and also the bridge that they cross has prayer flags all over it um the prayer wheel is a thing they walk past and they spin 
and like the camera kind of lingers as it's spinning and both of these objects the idea is that like as it spins or as the wind blows it and deteriorates it um, that it is actually carrying those mantras out into the world um, and most of the time it's um, the mantra Om Mani Padme Hum uh, which is sort of like if you're going to learn one mantra in Buddhism it's that one um, and so it like it shows them like this idea of like something uh, carrying a message out through the world through repetition and in this instance it's spinning um, but it's like sending out a message into the world um, the other one um, so and they actually use the instrument itself in the Bhutan section um, but then they use bottles uh, in the modern day uh, part of the film when we're in St. Louis um, is a human thigh bone trumpet, um, otherwise called a conling or a bone flute. Um, and this is what Paul is blowing into when he's like, like you see him that he has taken this from the, the spooky eldritch, like meditating creature bone thing, which I'll, I'll get to that, um, in the, that cavern he falls into, but also when he's sitting in front of the bridge and, and blowing into it. Um, what that is, is it's used in this specific, um, Buddhist practice, which is called the Chud. Um, and I'm probably saying that wrong. I don't speak Tibetan. <laughs> um, and yes, I believe that is where Stephen King got the Chud ritual from and it, um, mm. it's even spelled the same. Um, but there are no great turtle beings involved <laughs> in the Chud. Um, and, and basically what the Chud is, it's, Chud means to sever or to cut in in Tibetan. And the whole point of the practice is to um, learn ego, like to, to, as a way of like, ego attachment's not good in Buddhism. Like attachment's not good. It's one of the things that like keeps you in the cycle of, of rebirth. And so you literally sever yourself from your ego in the, the ritual. That's the, the point of it. Um, and, and in it, you are using um, uh, visualization in your meditation, because if everything's empty, then you can sort of use visualization as a transformation method, and that's as real as anything else. And whether you believe it's actually happening or if it's more just a mental exercise kind of doesn't matter. Um, and, and what you're doing is you sort of how you sever your ego from yourself is that you imagine that you kind of come out of your body and become a specific deity. And then you literally cut your body up and offer it into a sacrificial feast um, that like Buddhas come to and like you turn it into manna and they, you know, they eat it and they're happy and it's everything they want. Yay. Um, but the, the like spooky, like Buddhism is metal as fuck aspect <laughs> of it <laughs> is that you summon demons to this feast and, and spooky Buddhist demons, they can either be like in like the sort of more cultural sense, like demons of a specific area or region, but you'll often see it as a more psychological thing as well. Like what are your personal demons? Um, and the way you summon them is you blow into the bone trumpet. That is how you summon them to the feast and you give them what they want. That's how you show them ultimate compassion. Um, but like he was blowing into that bone flute. I'm like, oh shit, 
Like, this is, like, that's how you summon the empty man, is, like, the same way that you use this flute in this, in this practice. Um, and, and you're not supposed to blow into the flute of someone else. Um, because then you're summoning their demons. And so I was like, oh, that's <laughs> when, like, when she blew into the, the, the flute and like, it wasn't his originally either. Uh, but that's kind of, they don't really play with that in, in the film. Um, but yeah, so it's an instrument that literally summons demons and that's how they're using it. And so in the modern times in the film, people are using bottles this way. It's the same thing. It's, it's doing the same thing, but instead of using conglings, they're using um, just empty bottles found uh, on the bridge. Um, or the empty man, like Lissambre guy himself, the first minute he breathes, he is blowing into the bottle, right? Because he is the vessel. He is the carrier. Um, that's why I think what it is in the film doesn't matter as much. But the fact that they explicitly have him use a bone flute got me really... Um, really excited um and then one of the other things that i noticed was the the spooky creature skeleton thing that they find um in that little crevasse that he falls into i saw on a podcast or something that that was based off of a specific painting but to me it reminded me immediately of these sort of um buddhist depictions of um, Buddhist deities, um, specifically, you know, Buddhist deities will have like multiple arms or multiple legs. And there's one version of Avalokiteshvara that has a thousand arms. Um, and you know, he's sitting in a meditation posture and then he's just got this like halo of arms all spread out around him. And the spooky creature thing in the cave is doing exactly that. It's sitting in a meditative posture and yet it's got all of these arms coming out of it so it's like this dark perversion of this otherwise like good symbol and for the notes i even found one that's sculpted into the wall of a cave (laughs) and it looks (laughs) creepily like what they used in the film and so it was just like impossible for me to not have not just the sort of like derrida version of these concepts that they explicitly reference in the film later but also like the the buddhist philosophical elements because it feels like it's there's too much going on that it doesn't feel like an accident like it feels on purpose like why else would you set it in bhutan <laughs> why else would you have the spooky bone flute um why would you focus on the prayer wheel um when they walk past it um, so it felt just like too much to be a, a coincidence. Um, and it totally changed the way that maybe I would have viewed the film otherwise. Maybe why it was so scary to me. <laughs> <laughs> and Ash, what, what did you think about? Uh, I mean, uh, uh, this is just, I'm just having my, my, my mind blown over here. It's fine. Right. Um, but like, I, you know, <clears throat> Ash, did you, did you kind of know anything about this? this kind of philosophical and religious tradition and how that is getting presented here? Uh, No, is the answer to that one. I took like one course on Buddhism in my undergrad, and that is the extent of my knowledge, which I I suppose woefully unprepared me for uh, the empty man. (laughs) But there's a lot like, like this is, this is so compelling and and, and this is horrible. But the first thing I'm thinking is like, 
that that was like a beautiful exploration of of buddhism and and faith and religious practices and how they intersect with this random horror movie that like how could you dismiss this movie as oh perhaps one day this will be a cult classic when when you could have this conversation instead um so that was just absolutely absolutely phenomenal but i think um th this does point us towards what what i think is one of the big over overarching questions in this movie maybe not maybe not question but but complication or problem and that's orientalism absolutely yes <laughs> Yeah. As a person so. who practices, um, you know, a type of Buddhism that kind of originates in Tibet, that's something I'm very aware of, even in my own practice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how do, how do we feel about that then? Uh, because this movie is, uh, so it opens, it opens in Bhutan with a bunch of kind of white people going on like a mountaineering hike kind of vacation, uh, who... I, I, you know, maybe accidentally summon a, a tulpa skeleton demon thing. Um, and then we immediately cut back uh, to the United States where the same problems, but less bone flutes. And as, as Jay, as you so, I mean, like just incredibly outlined, there was a lot going on in this movie in terms of how it's using uh, the Buddhist iconography and religious ideas. John or Jay, take it away. <laughs> well, uh, Jay, Jay I, I feel like I feel like you should um, kind of unpack this a little bit for us as as people who are not Buddhist <laughs> ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> so um, one of the interesting things about Buddhism is that it is meant to be syncretic. So even though it is a um, a Vedic religion, it in, um, originates in India. Um, the sort of core tenets of what Buddhism is are so simple that it kind of gets absorbed into whatever culture it spreads to and that's on purpose um like it was deliberately um uh the, the buddha was like like shakyamuni was like all right there's four things and that's it go have fun do whatever you want um and, and so that is why like the Tibetan Buddhism is the way it is largely because there was already a sort of more shamanic um, uh, tradition in Tibet called Bon. Um, and so that's where a lot of these like cultural traditions get into Vajrayana uh, Buddhism specifically. Um, but even if you take those specific cultural elements out, the... Um, even the way that Tibetan Buddhism or Vajrayana Buddhism or Tantric Buddhism sort of takes the Buddhist canon and puts it into a framework that is, um, can happen in any culture. Like you don't have to be of a specific culture or race or ethnicity to practice it. But often in the West, um, it gets very wrapped into like new agey stuff, which is why I found mm -hmm. it fascinating that they make, the tulpa from San Francisco originally, because that's in the Bay Area, and all of my sangha or like congregation are from the Bay Area, <laughs> basically. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've ever been to Berkeley or Santa Cruz, um, <laughs> but like I go there and I feel conservative, right? And so the fact that they put him from this place where like he would already be around that like new agey woo woo 
stuff makes it so that he more readily can like be in these spaces and be like all right this is kind of weird but like i've seen worse um kind of conversation and so the way it often you know they're they're in the west is that often they will make it um more agnostic or even atheistic um which is fine um and it's even more psychological like a lot of our psychiatric practices are inspired by buddhism for example um it's even that practice i i mentioned um and often then in in the west so not only will it sort of remove these cultural elements or remove their contexts um but it will kind of change how you're practicing it um that's not always inherently bad the the path is whatever gets you there right um but i think it does ignore this beautiful tradition of why these are signifiers for for this because vajrayana buddhism is like the catholicism of buddhism it's all about symbols <laughs> and ritual um way in contrast to like zen which is very minimalistic right like vajrayana has like instruments and you do like cool feasts like offering feasts and like you wear fun outfits and there's like dancing and and stuff like that it's very not what people are used to with, with buddhism i would say um and also like a lot of cults take buddhist um or hindu ideas as their sort of core tenets right um in, in the united states at least i don't know about cults in, in other countries um but but yeah you'll often see cults spouting the same kind of philosophies or frameworks as buddhism um but instead of it being for this sort of like you know spiritual enlightenment or anything it's about removing the individual in a really perverted uh cruel way it's meant to strip you of your individual individuality um which again shows that even these concepts are empty because they can be good, but then you can also use them for bad. They're not inherently good, right? Um, There's something else I was going to say, but then my cat was being cute and I focused on him and my mind <laughs> um, <laughs> went blank. Uh, maybe it'll come back to me in a, uh, in a moment, but I'm sure there's stuff y'all want to say in response to that. Well, there's a couple of things that I wanted to I want to flag up. Firstly, there's a very useful term in sociology of religion called occulture, mm-hmm. which is um, refers to uh, the the kind of general cultural milieu as being um, interested and drawn to the uh, occult. And by that, I don't mean a kind of specific tradition um, or a body of knowledge, but simply that which is kind of hidden that's that which is seen as kind of in some way transgressive and historically it is undeniably true that a huge amount of that you know um thinking of things like the the this uh theosophical society um a lot of the occultism that emerged in the late 19th century a lot of that appropriated um you know quote unquote eastern wisdom framed of course in the most orientalist uh, uh and and kind of uh, quite dismissive terms 
building their own kind of syncretic systems out of it. And that gets filtered into a lot of like self-help systems. And even as you pointed out, Jay, things like, um, you know, contemporary psychiatric and mental health techniques. Um, and it's very, it's very, very striking that we're not dealing with uh, the cults that emerges in this is not is not Buddhist. Um, they they call themselves the Pontifex Institute, um, which is an incredibly Catholic name to yeah. give oneself. I think it means bridge or something, because um, I looked that up. It's a very clever name. Uh, and so, so it isn't. Um, uh, it isn't. It isn't strictly speaking uh, a Buddhist cult in the slightest. That, uh, as you pointed out, has nothing to do with um, with uh, it. it, it you, as you put it, it's a kind of perversion of a lot of, of Buddhist ideas. But it's about the continuation of a certain uh, co-optive Orientalist tradition, which has seen the you know, as Edward Said would put it, the Orient or the East as this source of of. Uh, authentic wisdom and spirituality that can be taken uh, out of its context and out of its full meaning and practices and implemented as a kind of uh, cultural mode. And it, it, you know, it proliferates, it diversifies, it splits off into other different things. So um, I I imagine for for people like uh, people who are Buddhists would find this film really weird to watch because there'll be a lot of like, Oh hey, there's that. Oh no, no. That yeah, the entire time, like literally, um, when he talks about like the empty man is like a, a this, and then it's a meditation. And if you look up the concept of empty- emptiness on Wikipedia, it literally says about half the things that he says about what the empty man is as what emptiness is. Um, like literally, it's um, there's a part where it's like uh, it is also often used to refer to a meditative state or experience. And I was like, oh come on, really? yeah yeah so really to, to to my mind there's a kind of parallel here between uh uh people like uh, madame blavatsky who made a big deal of mm. their travels to the east in the in the late 1800s and to our opening section in bhutan right you know it's it's it features features very very few non-white people uh it is it's it is about the appropriation and uh, control and re-implementation of these kind of philosophical and religious traditions that is entirely in keeping, actually, with a lot of the Orientalism that runs throughout huge swathes of the Western esoteric and occultic traditions, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's... Like, I, I every time I go to a museum um, and I see that they've got, a, like, a Kongling... Um, in like the little music section of whatever museum it is and they mm-hmm. they say it's like oh this is just like a ritual object um but they don't like say what it's for or like why were they traditionally made out of human thigh bones um and how that is in conversation with like the practice of sky yeah. burials <laughs> um and like how buddhism uses death as a meditative idea um they're just like no this this cool instrument thing that you know some german guy went to buddhism and found aka stole from someone and brought it and brought it um back but like i see you know even in my own town and i live in new england um i see people with prayer flags up outside 
um, or you'll see people wearing um, malas or like prayer beads that kind of like rosaries. Um, like you'll see people adorned with like Buddhist iconography and I have no idea what it means, um, why it means <laughs> that. Um, and yeah, I, I think I was going somewhere with that, but then I forgot again. Meds are kicking in. <laughs> uh, Ash, what about what about you? What do you think about the cult in this? The the thing which is not mentioned at all in the film's trailer, by the way. Oh yeah, yeah, you gotta gotta leave that out because there's no cults in in your uh, bye bye Baguli type movies. Um, yeah, what I find to be really interesting is that you know you have you have the Bagul Institute for Human Transcendence, and then you've got this. Uh, this opening this kind of like like the chef's tasting menu the yamouge bouche of this movie is is the sequence in bhutan but ultimately like it doesn't really contribute much it's almost like a false start for the movie uh you know i was thinking but towards the end of this movie that without that initial sequence in bhutan you've got a really interesting meditation on like western appropriation of these kind of like or orientalist ideas right and how, how they get reabsorbed into kind of these like uh, because the pontifex institute like it 100 percent looks the way that scientology is depicted absolutely you know it's it's got this like it's a it looks on the outside like a for-profit cult type situation you know and like i was really surprised when he's like he's like he goes to sign up right our, our protagonist is, is a is a former cop right so he's going to investigate and his his ruse is that oh I'm just here to sign up you know um, but secretly he's sneaking around uh, and he gets like their their intake form and the intake form is a bunch of questions that are some some of them are like like do you think science is evil question mark and like it's very but I was waiting for I was waiting for the one line to be like a oh, membership is fifty dollars a month for for initiates or something like especially that. especially they're all in these really sharp suits. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, yep. Yeah, very, the money, very, uh... the money is coming from somewhere. It, it, it's also very um, Mormon. Um, I used to. It's live got in a Salt prosperity Lake... gospel. Yes, to it, like yeah. I used to live in Salt Lake City, and one of like the things about Mormonism is it's very like you get really nice and cleaned up, and you are always dressed nice, and because like everything you do, like this perfection is an offering. Um, mm. It was weird culture to be in. Lots of plastic surgery. Um, so yeah, I you know instead of being like what we might think of as a cult of like a bunch of hippies um, out in the woods and the things go wrong, um, it's all these like yeah like little besuited um, like like Mulder and Scully kind of people show up at one point and, and yeah. get him um, get people. And I remember the thing I kept was going to say and then my my mind would wander um is that one of the th things about tantric vajrayana buddhism in particular is that you're not supposed to do any of the practice without having a teacher teach it to you and it's like through this formal mm -hmm. like it is the knowledge of the tradition and stuff is passed on to you and it creates this lineage going all the way back so that you are practicing it in the right context with the support of all of the teachers before you and then so when you see a lot of these concepts or iconographies or rituals outside of it especially in this movie where they're disconnected from that lineage that's how people get hurt 
in, in this because they don't know the proper ways to do it and they haven't had that official someone teaching them because these can be quite damaging concepts you know we we've seen that mm-hmm. yeah a, a lot of the ways that this film approaches and kind of presents these buddhist ideas reminds me of like this is like head shop of buddhism where you, where you go you go into the store to buy a bong and they have a bunch of like uh you know polyester tapestries of the buddha and like you know, like random, random Buddhist jewelry and stuff like that. But it's not, it's not connected to anything. It's just like a set of icons and symbols where it's like, oh, you wear this if you're someone who meditates and does yoga and and is kind of enlightened. And and then it's not a shock when we see a bunch of these like yoga moms getting sucked into like right-wing cults these days. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Um, like this is this is something that's so important to point out, which is like uh, it, the 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 kind of popular conception of a cult is like, oh, it's 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 the hippies. It's like you know the kind of like uh, uh, doubt. people who don't have a lot of money end up falling into that, and that's sometimes true, sometimes, but generally, um, like this this occulture, um, uh, this idea of like enlightenment that you can purchase. You know, which is which is which is essentially a big part of, for example, Scientology has always been. There's got to be a this, capitalist this... realism version of what you yeah. just said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this has always been something that's been aimed at, like not the upper classes because they usually have, um, they usually have their own long-standing traditional uh, religious and occult practices. But this is like this is like, you know the 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 middle classes the bourgeois how do you overcome the alienation of capitalism well we'll sell you the solution to the problems of that capitalism causes so of course it makes complete sense when you think about it this way that like the wellness moms got into being like anti-vaxxers uh and do you know know, how many anti-vaxxers are in my sangha and who were trying to get out of like their kids getting vaccinations for religious exemptions and too like, many yeah. quite a few it's always so frustrating they're like msg's bad i'm like there's msg and apples my god <laughs> <laughs> it's so frustrating um so yeah it's the the political economy of this cult is kind of fascinating mm-hmm. um because they're clearly immensely wealthy uh, they have basically what looks like the cabin from evil dead as their first base and then they've moved up into these kind of elaborate constructions, uh, you know, funding those Kandarian research professors. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, so like, uh, you're, you're completely right that there is a direct, there's a direct connection here towards this, uh, from this, again, to, to call it, to call it like specifically drawing off one religious or philosophical tradition is probably a bit unfair, but off this occulture, to uh to to sort of like middle class uh, alienation and a kind of nihilism when you when we get right to the end and you unpack the sort of uh nihilist uh, annihilationist metaphysics what is it that one character says it's going to be a bloodbath oh yeah he's pure chaos or, or something yeah. like that's what the empty man is is this like chaotic nothing blackness um 
and you're like uh okay but this seems to be seems to be saying more about the sort of like the the spiritual condition of of all of these sort of like middle class people with lots of book with lots of money to spend on the weird cult leaders books and to go on the courses <laughs> and all of those tailored suits i wonder if so- they're the ones who named the high school jacques derrida high school yes yeah. <laughs> like how deep does this money go <laughs> And isn't this what uh, Lissandra asks the nurse? You know, who's paying this guy's bills? Yeah. You know, he's been he's been in intensive care in an American hospital for a very long time. And then it turns out, like, all the people working in that hospital are basically, like, empty man cultists. Well, yeah, every, it, everyone it goes is. all the way to the top. Yep. I, I mean, the, the, the police department he worked for were empty man cultists. Uh, his friends and family, empty man cultists. Mm-hmm. You know, by by the end of the movie, like literally everyone on the planet is in the empty man cult. Yeah, like this is not just happening in St. Louis, um, mm-hmm. where this. Uh, which I, I'm wondering if they did it in St. Like said it in St. Louis because there are so many bridges, um, because the Mississippi floods a lot, and so you get houses on stilts and bridges everywhere. Like I've did. been on some of the bridges <laughs> in this film because I'm from yeah. that area of the country originally. <laughs> Um, so I'm, um, oh God, like the one cop who I heard in a podcast, he was in Home Alone 2. Uh, uh, he's like talking about how like someone, like some mom fed her baby to jackals, but it wasn't even in that area. It was off somewhere else. And so it's like how many of these like cells of this cult are around the world? And I think, I think a lot of that is like, it winds up watering down a lot of what this movie is, no pun intended, meditating on. Because now we're having this separate conversation about this kind of like decidedly American, or perhaps Anglo approach to like, you know, popular conspiracy theory stuff and popular cults. You know, like like the, the, the empty man is in the Pizzagate extended conspiracy theory universe now because he's... His cultists are everywhere. They're they're doing everything. You know, they're the highest people in the country are part of this cult. It's they're like Eldritch Illuminati. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that yeah, that, it's yeah. it's super easy to 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 uh, fall into. This is the kind of weird. This is the kind of weird trap that any any film that wants to uh, kind of explore a narrative of a cult ends up falling into almost inevitably, which is that. Um, the whole point is the the question of paranoia. You know, if you're investigating the cult, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, suddenly it's about it's about a shifting epistemological sense of one's place in the world. That's why that's why uh, cults are both scary and attractive, right? For those who get drawn into them, they give you a solution that makes sense of the world in a brand new way. Um, but in this case, it's it's just like, yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> like, you know, everybody's in on it, and it's sort of like. It would have been it there's it, when you dispel the tension of going is this is this just a small handful? How many people are in on this and you just go, yep, it's everybody, isn't it? It's everybody you make you make it um kind of inescapable and and this is exactly the kind of the point of something like of something like QAnon is like it it totalizes into a kind of cosmology. It isn't just about like 
the the people or the individual actors. It's about existence itself has to be fundamentally rethought. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, I know that um, Dan Olsen on YouTube made a really good video um, video essay on QAnon and sort of talking about how like these people have a certain view of the world or want it to be a certain way. And so they will literally shape truth and shape what they think the future is going to be and shape structures in order to reach that goal, uh, in order to make sense of the world. Um, and, and like they're flattening it, it through a weird, complicated conspiracy theory, but that is simpler than the reality yeah and if i had a criticism of the film it's 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 that which is that because i think the pacing is a little bit weird by the time you get to the point of being like oh he was he was screwed all along it's it's made it into um no no the 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 entire our entire understanding of existence has to has to now conform to this sort of like annihilationist uh oblivion that's about to kind of be broken (laughs) upon all conscious life and it's sort of like yeah i don't know about that it's like the last five minutes (laughs) yeah where it's all of a sudden like oh and by the way the way that you've been viewing reality is not real um all of this has been staged and also you aren't real have fun (laughs) (laughs) yeah this is this is uh the matrix but for facebook like, so uh, yes, I, I actually yes. really liked the pacing of this movie. I thought the pacing was really interesting from a technical standpoint, um, and that and that's because this has the pacing of like a uh, horror survival video game. This has the same pacing as um, a Resident Evil title, one of the Evil Within games, maybe a Silent Hill, especially the later ones, where you've got these like frantic moments of action that, that happen quickly and almost out of nowhere, right? At one moment, our protagonist is silently observing the cult during a thunderstorm f- further away than anyone can ever hear. And, and the next minute they're, they're lockstep with him, chasing him and jumping all over his car. And and then you just, you just kind of snap and you cut to the next sequence and that's not happening anymore. Just like a cutscene in a, in a, in a video game, right? And it's got this kind of like there's something like really ludic about this movie. It's it's like playing with a lot of conceptual elements of cinema. I mean, in the film itself, plays with time, and so mm-hmm. the, the pacing of the film. I didn't when I watched this. It doesn't feel like it's like two and a half hours long. Yeah. It's like it's like I'm watching like a David Fincher thriller, like procedural for like half of it, and then it just starts accelerating. Like you said, there'll be these like bouts of action, and then more like you know, procedural investigation stuff. But then, like, the spaces between things start getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's like you're kind of just, like, sitting there and you're on this ride with him. And then all of a sudden, like, the film just starts accelerating and bringing you to that final point. So that by the time you get to that final reveal of the end, like, you feel it a breath. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, like, this is is exactly the pacing of of a lot of survival horror games, right? You start with like a half broken gun and no resources. And by the end of the game, you've got a mountain of ammunition, a rocket launcher, and you're just flying through stuff. 
Um, we have been going for an yes. hour and twenty. Do we want to? Do we want to think about some final thoughts to to bring us into land? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think because there's so much I could I could say about this movie. Like we didn't even get to the the section on like repetition and performativity theory. Um, mm-hmm. but but I guess one of the I I don't know, <laughs> Asher John, you you go first. I my my thoughts are all over the place. I feel like I just watched <laughs> it again, right? <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I would just say think about uh, Derive and psychogeography and the situationists when considering how land functions in this movie and, and geography is, is, is used as a signifier of what's happening in the plot. That would be my that would be my final thought. My final thought would uh, I'll be a librarian here for for a second <laughs> um, in that like. I think I would want people to to think about um, because so much of of a lot of horror movies is in, about information seeking. Um, how does like the fact that all of this was planted and constructed um, and manipulated like affect how he finds it? And then like relating that to you know search algorithms on Google or Facebook or twitter or even like it shows wikipedia in the movie and the fact that wikipedia is in a constant state of flux and and change and so like really rethinking our um our relationship to to truth and finding information about the truth how about you john Um, i well i i actually think that makes even more sense when we talk about the ways in which kind of contemporary cults have used uh searching for truth uh, as both an algorithmic kind of hack and as a means of like selling themselves um the thing that i would think about is like the 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 horror of this film is if it's is is in if its metaphysics are correct and one influence we we didn't have a chance to talk about is um uh schopenhauer schopenhauer mm. appropriates a lot of um uh vedic and, and uh buddhist um philosophy and often uses it in ways in which contemporary buddhist philosophers and religious writers would disagree with but uh schopenhauer is this like deeply miserableist um kind of ethics and metaphysics that the world is um is void is chaos is um it's all laid out in um uh what's called the world is will and representation in the english translation and it's um it's it's like if this is true uh, then existence is is just a p- kind of painful cosmic joke, and I think it's like that's the core of horror that this is trying to explore. So not not only is this kind of an urban folk horror, but this is also a a, a cosmic horror. Oh, absolutely! This gets this gets just incredibly Lovecraftian at, at points. But there you go. There's there's kind of three three sort of radically divergent further directions this conversation <laughs> could have gone, which I think just goes to prove just how much is in this yeah. two hour movie that that seemingly nobody saw when it came out. It's such and... a rich text to to really dig into. 
Cosmic Horror Library Scientist Situationist International is is one of the most beautiful phrases that has ever been willed into existence. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Jay, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was just a fantastic conversation. Thank you for inviting me on. And I'm excited to to like let people like finally someone will be talking about like the Buddhist stuff (laughs) in this film. Uh, So I feel cool that it's me that gets to do it. (laughs) Hell yeah. Remind our audience one more time where they can find you on the internet. So you can find the podcast that I co-host, Library Punk, wherever uh, fine podcasts are found. Our website is librarypunk.gay, and we are at Library Punk on Twitter. Um, and then you can find me on Twitter at underscore wild at heart, but spelled like Oscar Wilde. Hell Yeah. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us on our episode on The Empty Man. Uh, This has been a very full discussion, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Go make your thoughts made flesh. (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.